In the middle of last month, I embarked on a sermon series related to the need for the Church of Christ to boldly confront the lies of the present culture uh, with the truth of Scripture, with the truth of the Christian worldview. And I began by observing that our culture has launched a full-out assault against the very concept of truth, a concept that is fundamental to all rational thought, and especially to our understanding both of reality and morality. So I said, as a result of sort of jettisoning the concept of truth altogether, our society has descended into absurdity and chaos, a claim that is virtually self-evident to anyone bothering to pay attention, uh, but which is no better illustrated than by our culture's embrace of transgender ideology. And because of that, and because of the irreparable damage that this ideology is wreaking in the lives of so many in our culture, I thought it profitable to bring the Word of God to bear on the question of human sexuality. If we're going to have any hope of being salt and light in this culture, in the way Jesus commands us to be, we will need to be equipped to tear down the strongholds of our society's perverse sexual credo and to take every thought captive unto Christ, to proclaim the lordship of Jesus Christ and the biblical doctrine of sexuality. And I mentioned that as I began studying to do that, I quickly realized how central the notion of identity has become in this discussion. Our culture has actually conflated sexuality with identity. According to them, our sexual appetites define us. We are what we desire. And if we ever act out of accord with our basest desires and impulses, well, we are somehow not being true to our authentic self. Well, that's not how Scripture defines mankind. And that made me realize that before I dove into biblical sexuality head-on, I needed to back up and consider mankind's identity at its most fundamental level. And we said last time that that identity begins with the fact that we are creatures. This is the very first most fundamental thing to say about man. In fact, it's the first thing said about man in Genesis 1.26 that Mike read for us earlier. Then God said, let us make man. And so the first thing we must say about man is that he is made, that he is not God, that he is the creature of the one true and living God. Fine with me. Man is not God. He is the creature of God. And that means that we do not create our own identity. Uh, but that we receive our identity from our Creator. We are not evolved animals, however highly functioning. We are not slaves to our basest passions and impulses. We are not of no more dignity than to be discarded when society determines that we are no longer useful or convenient or wanted. And yet neither are we semi-divine demigods, unaccountable to anyone but ourselves, fabricating our own truth and speaking our own identity into existence. We are most fundamentally creatures, 
And so we are accountable to God, our creator, subject to the identity he has given us, subject to the law of his mouth as the rule for our lives. And so last time we defended that fundamental tenet of mankind's identity, his creatureliness, by vindicating the biblical doctrine of creation. If the culture's goal is ultimately to free man from his accountability to his creator and the totalizing claims of the law of God so that he can be left alone to sin in peace, well, then you start at the very root. You seek to undermine the notion that man is a creature at all, and you say he's the product of evolutionary processes and so on. And so we defended the doctrine of six-day creation. Well, we turn today to discuss what is perhaps the next most fundamental concept concerning man's identity, namely that man is created as the image of God. Because the second thing that shows up in Genesis 1:26, right after the term man is used for scripture or used for the first time in scripture, is that man is the image of God. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. In verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Back in 1971, in the latter stages of his ministry, that great expositor Martin Lloyd-Jones gave a fascinating interview on the BBC. You can still watch it if you were to punch into YouTube, Martin Lloyd-Jones Joan Bakewell. It's a great 20-minute interview. And in the interview, he captured the sort of schizophrenic, internally inconsistent view of man's identity that still plagues our society. He said, the contemporary conception of man, on the one hand, doesn't make enough of man, and on the other, makes too much of him. We don't make enough of man because we consider him to be a mere animal not really distinct from the other creatures. Abortion, euthanasia, when a person is is deemed to be not useful or too much of an inconvenience, he can be set aside, discarded, thrown away. We don't make enough of man because we don't see him as an image bearer of Almighty God. We don't see the inherent dignity and value that man has, and so we treat him as an animal. And yet the Scriptures say that man is the pinnacle of God's creation, uniquely created in His image to represent His glory to the world, whose life is valuable because it is the image of the Creator of that life. And so on the one hand, we don't make enough of man. On the other hand, as Lloyd-Jones said, we make too much of man. We flatter ourselves into suggesting that man is basically good, a morally upright being who just needs to live out his authentic inner self. There are these axiomatic catchphrases, uh, almost catechetical phrases from our culture. You're amazing just the way you are. You do you. No one can judge you. You need to love yourself. Find your truth and live your truth, which is to say, fabricate your own version of reality and insist on it. You can create male and female in your image. You determine when a baby in the womb becomes a person, 
when it has value and dignity and so should be protected from harm. You can define marriage however you see fit. Two men, two women, even three people. These days, you can marry your pet. Google it, you'll see that there's documentation. And what that shows you is that even when man makes too much of himself, he winds up not making enough of himself. The embrace of transgenderism leads men and women to treat themselves like Frankenstein-like experiments and often ends in irreversible self-mutilation and sterilization. The embrace of abortion leads to the murder of defenseless human beings. The embrace of homosexuality leads to the denigration and trivialization of the most solemn of human relationships. But there is this self-contradictory approach to man's identity, isn't there? On the one hand, we don't make enough of him. On the other hand, we make too much of him. But instead of that schizophrenic, inconsistent view of man, Scripture identifies man as the image of God. Joel Beakey makes the comment that man is a fallen masterpiece of God. And I think that that really captures it well. Man is a masterpiece. We are a masterpiece because we are made in the image of God, and therefore we have inherent dignity. Our lives are worthy to be protected because we are the closest reflection to the life and character of our Creator. But man is a fallen masterpiece. We have not remained in that very good state in which God created us. We haven't lost the image of God, but we have marred it. Something has gone terribly wrong with us so that the altogether optimistic views of man and his moral goodness are a wild caricature of reality. Man and woman are lost, bound for hell, and totally beholden to the sovereign grace of God for any remedy to our hopeless situation. Beakey goes on to strike that balance well when he says, the value of all things lies in their manifestation of the glory of God. And God has chosen to concentrate His revealed glory in the human race. In other words, there is glory and dignity in the human race, but it's a derived glory and dignity. It's derived from the glory and dignity of God whose image man is. God multiplies and magnifies His own glory by creating little images of Himself, pictures of His beauty and glory and righteousness as the crown and apex of His creation. And so it's difficult to overestimate the importance of the doctrine of the image of God. That human beings are created in God's image stands as a defining notion for understanding who we are fundamentally, where we've come from, what our purpose is, to whom we are accountable, and how we are to function in our various relationships. And as Christians, you need to understand who man is in relation to his creator, in relation to his fellow man. If you don't, you will not be equipped to witness to the truth of Christ and Scripture in this present age. This is where the battle is raging, and we need to be equipped to wage the warfare of taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, not only in our own minds, first in our own minds and thinking, but then as we engage the lost world around us. 
Well, let's get to it then. We saw Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. We also see it in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. In Genesis 9, 6, God says, whoever sheds man's blood... By man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. And it's not just in the Old Testament. In 1 Corinthians eleven seven, Paul says, For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. And then we have it again in James 3, 9, which says, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God of God. And when you do a detailed word study of the Greek and Hebrew terms for image and likeness, you are left with a couple of conclusions. First, the two terms are virtually interchangeable. It's not as if image speaks of one discrete concept and likeness of another. There's some nuance, but it's virtually the same thing. And second, the terms express the notion of representation and similarity. In the ancient world, a king or a ruler would place an image or an idol of himself in his realm to symbolize his sovereignty over that realm. When others saw the image, they knew who had control. Well, in the same way, God's image bearers represent God in the world. And a likeness was simply a pattern after an original, something like the original but not identical to it. Genesis 5.3 tells us that Seth was made in Adam's likeness, which meant that Seth was like Adam in that he was a human being from his loins, even while he was not identical to Adam. And so man is not identical to God, as pantheism teaches. Neither is man a part of God, as in panentheism. We do not partake in God's incommunicable attributes. God alone is eternal and infinite, while man is temporal and finite. God alone is self-existent, while man depends on God for life and breath and all things. God alone is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, while man is limited in power and wisdom and is localized in space. So, man's creation in the image of God does not mean that we creatures are so much like our Creator as to be gods in any sense. Instead, being created in the image of God means that we are like God in very important ways and that we represent God in the world in a way that is unique among the other creatures. In fact, it's best to say not that man has the image of God somewhere dwelling within him, but that man is the image of God on earth, representing God to the world. Why are we here? What is the purpose or meaning of life? What am I supposed to do in this world? Men and women are designed by God to make His character visible, living in a way that tells the truth about God to the rest of creation. That's why we're here. That is who we are. Now, Scripture never explicitly defines in what specific ways and to what exact extent man is like God, but we can make several observations from the relevant texts. 
In fact, we're going to work quickly through nine features of the image of God that will give us a full-orbed biblical picture of our identity as image bearers. And then after we consider those nine features, we'll summarize by considering several implications. So, number one, we've mentioned already several times this idea of representation. Number one, representation. If man's being the image of God means that we represent him in some way, the manner in which we represent him must at least include the notion that we share some of his attributes in a finite way. Part of what it means to be God's image is that we show forth his communicable attributes, those attributes which he communicates to his creatures. If God created in power, we expect that those he created in his image would reflect a degree of that power and authority, which, of course, man does in being tasked with exercising dominion and ruling over that creation, subduing the earth. If he created in wisdom, we expect that his image bearers would reflect that in some way, and we see it in man's intellectual capabilities above that of other creatures. The events of Genesis 1 are not caused by an impersonal force, but a personal creator, and so it's right to expect his image bearers to be persons in a way that could not be predicated of the rest of animate creatures. And since God created by his word, let there be, we would expect that his image bearers would resemble his communicative nature, even in a way that surpasses the powers of communication of the rest of creation. Animals communicate But man's linguistic powers are unique in his reflection of the God whose image man bears. He communicates with God. He communicates about God to one another in ways that far surpass the animals. And so man represents God, in part, by reflecting certain of his communicable attributes to the world. And we'll have more to say about that. But number two, then, reverence. And by reverence, I mean that man's being the image of God reflects the worship of God. Just as sinful men make idols, images of their gods, that they might worship a visual expression of idols, so also the true God makes images of himself to multiply the worship of himself. He does it in a non-blasphemous way. But when God's image bearers rebel and worship idols rather than reflecting the God in whose image they were made, they begin to reflect their idols. G.K. Beale has that great study, You Become What You Worship. Piper talks about how what we behold is what we become. He says, you resem- or Beale says, You resemble what you revere, whether for your ruin or restoration. And in a sense, we can say that we are to revere what we were made to resemble. We are to revere what we were made to resemble. God's character is reflected in a finite and imperfect way in man, but in such a way that we may see that faint reflection of His character. And without worshiping the pictures, we may worship Him for how He's revealed Himself in His image bearers. How opposite that is to our society's self-perception. The dignity that we have is reflective of God's glory, God's worth, 
We are to see the glory of God faintly reflected in man, and we are to trace the streams of that glory back up to the fountain from which they flow, to God Himself. Man is to be a conduit of the worship of God. And yet, what has man done? Man has perverted that to make God the means of exalting man. It's famously been said that God made man in his own image, and ever since, man has returned the favor by creating God in his own, his own image. Men and women today use God as a boon of their own self-esteem rather than seeing themselves as an instrument of the way that God's name is esteemed. Number three, relationship. Relationship. Representation, reverence, and relationship. In the text in which God declares that He has made man in His image, He reveals Himself in personal plurality. Let us make man in our image. And I do think that that is a veiled reference to the plurality of the persons in the Godhead, what we later to learn to be triunity. There is both unity and diversity in the very life of God Himself, one essence subsisting in three co-equal, co-eternal, consubstantial persons. And that unity and diversity, that relational interaction, is reflected in the nature of man as God's image. And you see that in a number of ways. Immediately after stating that God made man in His own image, He clarifies, male and female, He created them. Gender, and in particular, the gender binary, is fundamental to the biblical doctrine of man. What it means to be an image bearer is to be either male or female. And that's going to figure prominently in our later messages, but I can't resist a comment. If that is so, right, any attempt to change one into the other, and certainly to try to find a space in between those two, is a fundamental attack on one's own humanity, it is, it is an attack on one's self, a, a suicidal attempt at self-exaltation. I'm going to define who I am and in the process undermine my humanity by making myself neither male nor female. But right, right there we see unity and diversity in God's image that reflects unity and diversity in God Himself. Males and females are united in their humanity, but distinct in their different genders. Father, Son, and Spirit are united in their essence and distinct according to their personal properties. Father, Son, Spirit. And the fact that the first male and the first female were then soon brought together in marriage and then were immediately tasked with being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth means that family is the fundamental institution for human relationships. Family is the fundamental institution for human relationships, and you see it right out of Genesis 1, 26 to 28 in the most fundamental passage, the first passage about man's identity. 
And certainly the notion of sonship bespeaks what it means to be the image of God in relationship. Luke 3.38 calls Adam the son of God. And Adam is made in the image and likeness of God. Well, in the same way, in Genesis 5, 1 to 3, Adam's son, Seth, is said to be fathered in the likeness of Adam, according to his image. And so there's this great interconnection between sonship and image bearing. And so the fact that we were created in God's image speaks to the relationship that human beings will eventually carry on with our own children. A son is like his father. That speaks of representing God's attributes. A son should honor his father. That speaks of the reverence or worship that we just spoke about. A son often shares his father's authority as his representative. And that speaks of the dominion overtones that I'll speak about in a moment. And a son relates to his father in fellowship and communion. And so we might summarize image as relationship by noting that the image bears on man's relationship to God, we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It bears on man's relationship to his fellow man, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, treating one another with the dignity that accords to image bearers of God. And image bears on man's relationship to the inanimate creation. Man is to rule over the creation. He is to cultivate and steward the resources of the environment in such a way that glorifies God. And that leads nicely to number four, rule, or we might say reign, R-E-I-G-N. Immediately following the decree that God would make man in his image, he says, Genesis 1, 26, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and so on. Verse 28, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over everything that moves on the earth. So you see, man is God's representative in this particular way. He will image God's authority by reigning over creation as vice-regent, as if in the place of God Himself. Man's job is to make the invisible king visible by our rule over creation according to the dictates of the king. When we read of the kingdom implications of man's rule as vice-regent in Psalm 8, 4 to 8, that winds up getting quoted in Hebrews 2, the psalmist asks, What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. And so a key part of this image is ruling and reigning over creation as God's vice-regent as representative of the king who is absent or seemingly absent in personal presence. We are to be the image of that invisible king. Number five is rectitude, which is to say that there is a moral aspect to the image of God. Scripture says that God made man very good, Genesis 1, 31. Ecclesiastes 7.29 says that God made man upright, 
This means that Adam and Eve were not morally neutral creatures. They were created in what the Reformed tradition calls original righteousness. But we didn't stay that way, did we? Man fell into sin, and we acted inconsistently with our identity as image bearers of the holy God. And the New Testament then teaches that the believer in Christ is being progressively renewed into that image. Colossians 3.10 says the believer has put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So in progressive sanctification, we're being renewed into the image of God, returning to a condition in which we no longer are in. Similarly, Ephesians 4, 23 to 24 says that we are to be renewed in the spirit of our mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God, or literally according to God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Here again, we're being renewed into the likeness of God and where Colossians 3 speaks of a true knowledge, Ephesians 4 speaks of righteousness and holiness. And so we could put them together. This moral aspect of the image of God consists in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Charles Hodge says, that image did not consist merely in man's rational nature, nor in his immortality, nor in his dominion, but specially in that righteousness and holiness, that rectitude in all his principles, which are inseparable from the possession of the truth or true knowledge of God. But we know that this rectitude is not all there is to the image of God, because this moral aspect was lost in the fall and is regained through faith in Christ. True knowledge and righteousness and holiness, do, that does not describe man in his current fallen state. Far from true knowledge, Scripture speaks of man as one who walks in the futility of his mind, Ephesians 4.17, darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Rather than righteousness, Romans 3 testifies that there is none righteous, not even one. And rather than holiness, Isaiah 64, 6 says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And so this moral aspect of the image was lost at the fall. We are a masterpiece, but a fallen masterpiece. But Scripture is very clear that the image of God in man is not entirely vanquished by the fall. And that means there's more to the image than just the moral aspect. And that leads us to number six. The image is remaining. It is remaining. The image of God in fallen man is marred, but it is not lost. It's distorted, but it is not entirely destroyed. How do we know that? Well, after the fall and even after the flood in Genesis chapter 9, God repeats Genesis 1, 26 to 28, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He repeats that charge to Noah in chapter 9, verse 1. And in addition to that, now in a world that labors under the curse of sin, God institutes the law of capital punishment. Genesis 9, 6 says, whoever sheds man's blood... By man his blood shall be shed, 
For in the image of God, he made man. So now in 9.3, God gives every living beast to man for food, which means that man may shed the blood of animals for food and not be subject to any punishment. But to shed man's blood, that is not allowed. For because in the image of God, he made man. After the fall, man's being created in the image of God is the ground upon which his life has dignity and worth above the rest of the creatures and is thus protected by the threat of death. You can kill the animals for clothes. You can harvest them for resources. You can domesticate them to serve God's interests to benefit mankind. But if you kill a man, you've got to die because you've attacked the very image of God. So the image of God remains. James 3.9 is another text. James expresses the incongruity of using our tongues to praise God on the one hand and then to curse men on the other, to speak evil of men on the other who, James says, have been made in the likeness of God. Don't treat people this way. Don't bless God and curse His image. The, the men that James is speaking about obviously exist after the fall, and so we must conclude that even after the fall, man retains the image of God in some sense. And just a footnote, whereas uh, Genesis 9-6 uses image after the fall, James 3-9 uses likeness after the fall. And so we've got both terms used to speak of man as the image and likeness of God even after the, the curse of sin. And so though sin has distorted the image of God such that the Christian life is spoken of as a progressive renewal or restoration of that image, nevertheless, it has not been totally obliterated or destroyed. We're not what we ought to be, but we do remain human, and we do remain, therefore, image bearers. You say, in what sense? Well, Romans 1.20 does speak of a theoretical knowledge of God, right? Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. But they do have this genuine knowledge of God and as an image bearer. That's more than can be said of an animal or a plant or a mountain. Man also has a conscience, Romans 2.15. Even unbelievers have consciences. They might silence their conscience. They might even sear their conscience. But they do, we, fallen mankind retains this system in his heart that reproaches him for his behavior, that violates the law written on the heart, and which approves of him when he walks consistently with that law. There's a general kindness that even unbelievers show toward one another. Matthew 7, verse 11 says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... Right? Which, so Jesus acknowledges that evil, e- even evil men can give good gifts. This shows that the image of God is not entirely destroyed. And then there are what some would call shadows of virtue. That's a sort of a technical term in, in the study of uh, the image of God, shadows of virtue. 2 Timothy 3.5 speaks of those holding to a form of godliness but denying its power. Well, to whatever form of godliness those people hold to. That's a, that's a good thing. Even though fallen man is inwardly corrupt and worthy of no reward from God and will be punished 
for their sin. Nevertheless, if someone outwardly conforms to those external requirements of the law of God, there's evidence of restraint of sin, which speaks to not having totally lost the image. We are not brute beasts. We are not as bad as we could be. There's some reflection of godlikeness because the image remains. And so 1 Corinthians 5.1 talks about sins that are not even named among the Gentiles taking place in the Corinthian church. So the point is there's some dignity that remains in humanity. There's some vestigial reflection of God in the man who was patterned after God in his creation. And so all people, even in their fallen state, are to be treated with dignity and kindness. They have inherent value as image bearers of God. Well, then number seven, there is the realized image, which is to say the perfected image, who is Christ. Scripture defines the God-man, Jesus Christ, as the perfect image of God. Because of our sin, humanity has marred that image in us. In order to restore us to a relationship with, the, with God, the Father has sent His own Son to be a perfect representative both of God Himself and of humanity. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Colossians 1.15, He is the image of of the invisible God. Christ makes the invisible God visible, which is precisely what Adam was tasked with doing and failed to do. And so by being the perfect God, the perfect reflection of God, He is the perfect man. Hebrews 1.3, and He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. Jesus is the image of God in its perfection, so that if you've seen Him, you've seen the Father, John 14, 9. In the ways in which men and women fail to function as the image of God, falling short in all three of those primary relationships, God, others, and creation, Jesus has succeeded. He perfectly loved God with all His heart, soul, mind, and strength, and thus He related to God rightly. He perfectly loved his neighbor as himself, and thus he related to fellow humans rightly. And he demonstrated his righteous dominion over nature by quieting the storm, by walking on water, by healing disease, and thus he related to creation rightly, even as its Lord. He is, therefore, the last Adam. 1 Corinthians 15.45 calls him the last Adam who succeeds where Adam fails and imputes to this new race under his headship the righteousness that God demands. Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15.22. He is the realized image of God. Then eighth, there is the renewed image The renewed image, speaking of us who have been saved and who are in the process of being progressively conformed to the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that believers behold the glory of Jesus and are thereby being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Christ is the perfect image of the Father and we are being conformed into the perfect image of Christ. Again, Colossians 3.10, we've put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image 
of one who created us. And so in whatever ways we make progress in holiness, we are conformed to the image of Christ who is the image of God. And thus that moral aspect that was lost is progressively renewed. All the way until, number nine, that image is restored. Restored. And that restored image comes to fruition ultimately in our complete conformity to Christ-likeness in glorification. 1 Corinthians 15, 49 speaks of our resurrection and says, just as we have borne the image of the earthy man, Adam, we will also bear the image of the heavenly man, Christ. And 1 John 3, 2, we know that when he appears, we will be like him, likeness, because we will see him just as he is. And so I love this comment from Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley in their systematic theology. They say, just as Christ is greater than Adam, so our image bearing in Christ will be more glorious than Adam's. This life not only will lift Christians above their present condition in this fallen world, but will exalt them higher than Adam ever stood in paradise. For the first man was earthy, earthly, but the second man is heavenly. And again, I'm just struck with that contrast at the way that our world, the people of our society, destroy themselves, right? In seeking to be more than the image of God, to exercise the prerogatives of God himself by creating male and female in our own image and tampering with those things, he, he, man ruins himself beneath what Adam was. In Christ, walking in faith after the perfect image of God, believing Him and pressing after Him in grace, man is restored to a, a position above what he had in Adam. Man's devices ruin him beneath Adam. Christ comes and restores humanity above that which was in Adam. This is where true life is lived. Life is not lived in personal self-actualization of all of our base fleshly desires. Life is found in humble submission to the Lord of glory, walking after His dictates as to what it means to be faithful, what it means to be human in this life. And if our society would learn to get away from that ruin of oneself, that self-rovination, they need only to turn their eyes away from themselves and set them upon Christ and follow after Him in faith. So that's the nine. You got them all? I don't think I could read them all back to you. All right, we've mentioned some along the way, but I want to take time to summarize a handful of implications of the doctrine of the image of God. We'll do four of them. First, that man is created in the image of God is the basis for his uniqueness and dignity. And I've said this, no other creature can be said to be created in the likeness, image and likeness of God. And that gives to humans a special place of dignity and responsibility that is not shared by other created beings. So animals are valuable to God, but people are more valuable. And some of you are tempted to be offended by that statement. Jesus tells his hearers in Matthew 6:26 that they are, quote, worth much more than the birds of the air. He says in Matthew 10:29 to 31 that the disciples are more valuable than many sparrows. 
And in Matthew 12, 12, speaking of healing a man on the Sabbath and how even the Pharisees would rescue a sheep who had fallen into a pit on the Sabbath, Jesus says, how much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? And so there is a dignity that is afforded to man precisely because he is an image bearer. 1 Peter 2.17 says, Honor all people. Each human being is owed an appropriate honor for no other reason than that he is the image of God. This has implications for the way that we treat the poor, Scripture says. Proverbs 14.31, He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. So if you oppress the poor, you taunt the God who made him. If you're gracious to the poor, you honor the God who made him. Surely this has implications for the poorest of the poor, the precious little babies inside the wombs of their mothers who have no voice of their own to raise in their defense, no capability to protest that they are not merely clumps of cells but are living human beings who bear the image of their maker. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 says, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and needy. And again, there, there are no more unfortunate, afflicted, or needy persons on the planet than those tiny image bearers whom it is legal to rip apart limb from limb in many states still. In this state, first of all, it seems. The Bible calls the babies in the womb children. It uses the same terminology of babies in the womb as it does of babies out of the womb. The law of God, Exodus 22, requires that someone be put to death for killing an unborn child. And that means that the law of God recognizes that the unborn baby is an image bearer of God right alongside its mother. And that means, friends, that abortion has nothing to do with women's rights. It has everything to do with the image of God. It has nothing to do with choice. It has nothing to do with men trying to control women's bodies. It has everything to do with the image of God. Christians are against the murder of defenseless children. Let me just say that. Christians are against that. If you're not against that, you violate a fundamental principle of the Christian worldview and you show yourself at best confused and at worst still in bondage to your sins and your corrupt reasoning. But Christians are against the murder of defenseless children because they are image bearers. Because God's image is to be honored among men and women. Who do you love most? You love God most, who is most worthy of love. And so then who do you love second most? The image of God, precisely because He is the image of God. That sounds sort of like a first and second great commandment, doesn't it? That is what abortion is about. And so anyone who sheds the blood of those tiny image bearers, anyone, including their mothers, deserves to have his or her blood shed as a result. Genesis 9, 6. 
And of course, we could say all the same things about euthanasia. Just because a human being is so old or infirm that he is no longer considered useful to society or because it, even because it might seem more merciful to relieve his suffering by putting him out of his misery, the doctrine of the image of God simply does not allow us to put him to death. Christians oppose euthanasia because these dear people are image bearers of the Almighty God. And so their lives have inherent worth and value. To shed innocent blood is murder. It is one of the six things that the Lord says He hates in Proverbs chapter 6. And it is worthy of the very capital punishment that God prescribes in Genesis 9, 6. Now, aside then from uniqueness and dignity, a second implication is that all human beings, all of us, are image bearers. And that, therefore, means that all human beings are created equal before God. God created man in His image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Men and women are equal image bearers of God. And therefore, they have equal inherent worth and dignity. Now, we understand from Scripture that men and women are given different roles to fulfill, both in the home and in the church, and we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. But that doesn't mean that there is any essential superiority or inferiority among them. This means that any sort of sexism, whether chauvinism or feminism, is an attack on the image of God. Any notion of the domination or abuse or subjugation of women by men or of men by women is a failure to live consistently with and therefore a violation of this fundamental doctrine of Scripture. So also, Acts 17, 26, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. God made from one man every ethnicity. So that means every ethnicity equally bears God's image. Any sort of ethnic prejudice or racial partiality is an attack upon the image of God. Remember how James reasons. We can't praise God with our tongue and then with that same tongue curse people made in the image of God. And that you keep it in your heart and not on your tongue is no better. Because what does God look upon? The heart. So do you see, you see how James reasons? The Imago Dei creates ethical obligations for how we treat one another. And so any ethnic partiality is strictly forbidden by Scripture. I said it in my message last time in January, but we all have the same daddy. Our unity as image bearers of God overcomes any enmity that has been created by focusing too exclusively on our diversity. And so you are to view yourself and you are to view others not first as black, white, Asian, or Hispanic. Not first as European or Latino or African. You are to view yourself and others first as human, as an image bearer of the one true, and living God. Third, 
there is both the rule and the stewardship of the creation. Beaky and Smalley, in their systematic theology, again write this, the right to engage in agriculture and industry arises directly from the dominion of God's image bearers over the world. When human beings breed animals, care for them in controlled environments, put them to work in service to humanity, and kill them to harvest their bodies for food, medicine, and other products, they are not transgressing against the quote-unquote oneness of all life. They are exercising God-given authority over God's earth. We are to rule the earth. And so we are neither to idolize, well, we are to idolize neither the creation nor the creatures of the creation. We do not treat animals like people. I know you love your pets, but your dogs and your cats are not your children. They are not your fur babies. They are wonderful and precious companions, but do not dishonor the image of God by blurring the distinction between humans and animals. Love your pets. Love them. The righteous man is kind to his beast, Proverbs says. But don't put them in the place of the human beings in your family, or if you have no blood family, in the place of the human beings in the family of God. Say, but all I've got are my pets. No, if you're in Christ, all you've, you've got the family of God. You've got brothers and sisters who are happy to step in and serve you in these ways that you long for and miss because of the absence of any blood relatives. Don't transfer what, what, what affection belongs to the image of God to what is not the image of God. And of course, downstream of that is marrying your pet, as I mentioned before. So we don't idolize the creatures of creation. Similarly, we don't idolize the creation itself. This planet has been given by God to His image bearers with the intent that we use it. God never intended this present creation in its present order to be eternal. And so we ought not to be overly concerned with trying to save the planet or trying to take care of Mother Earth, the the latter of which is an entirely pagan notion. There is no such thing as Mother Earth. I like what one man said referencing Isaiah 66.1, where God says, heaven is is, uh, your throne and earth is your footstool. Your Mother Earth is my Father's footstool. (laughs) And yet, at the same time, we don't abuse the creation. We don't treat it disdainfully or wastefully. We are not reckless or exploitative of it. We are stewards, and so we need to be faithful and sensible stewards. 1 Corinthians 4, it is required of a steward that it be found faithful, right? Rather than faithless and careless. And then finally, number four, we must reiterate that the image is the basis of for accountability to God. One theologian put it this way. So, number four, accountability, the basis for accountability. One theologian said, to be created in God's image is to belong to God, to be responsible to obey His law, and to devote ourselves to Him in love, faith, and service. See, the point is, the God in whose image you are made will be the God you one day stand before to give an account for your life. And that means you are not free to order your life however you see fit. 
you are not free to forge your own identity. You are what God says you are, and you must conduct yourself in the ways that God says you must. You may not rebel against the created order of God by identifying as a different gender when God has made you male or female in His image. God has designed to receive glory. Hear me now, and I'll repeat this in the coming months. God has designed to receive glory from your life as His creature, as the male or female that He has created you to be. You, as a woman, cannot glorify God as a man is designed to. And you as a man cannot glorify God as a woman is designed to. God means to get particular praise from your life given your manhood or womanhood. Similarly, you may not rebel against the created order of God by pursuing romantic and sexual relationships with members of the same sex. He created men and women to complement one another. That it not, not say nice things about, although that too, but to complement one another, to, to, to fit, to, you know, he, he made a helper suitable, a, 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 you know, compatible for Adam. Man and woman are to image forth the unity and the, diver, the diversity of the Godhead, as I said before, just as there is unity of essence and diversity of person in the Trinity, so also there is to be a unity of humanity and a diversity of gender in the marriage relationship. Homosexual quote-unquote marriage, which there is no such thing, distorts the picture of God that mankind is designed to be. So you see, you're bearing the image of another, right? Who, who's, whose image is on this coin? Well, Caesar's. Well, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But whose image is upon this man? Whose image is upon this woman? God's. Well, then render to God the things that are God's. Your bearing the image of God, the image of another, speaks of your accountability to that other. And if you appear before the God in whose image you are made, in the nakedness of your own righteousness, apart from being restored to the image of God by being conformed to the image of Christ by faith, you will suffer His eternal judgment. Being created in the image of God, but having fallen and marred the image of God, is reason to seek restoration into the image of God through faith alone in Christ alone and then to walk in conformity to Christ-likeness. But Christ, the God-man, the second Adam, the perfect image of God, the one who is the exact imprint of God's nature, has come. And He has lived the life that all of us image-bearers were commanded to live but failed to live. And He has died on the cross, the death that each one of us deserved because of our sins. And he rose from the grave in victory over sin and death so that we might put on the new self who is being renewed into a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created us. It falls to us then to repent of our sins, of the ways that we have marred the image of God in us and have lived inconsistently with our identity as his image bearers and to trust in Christ, the perfect image of God, to restore us to him. 
And so I call you to believe, to repent and believe, unbeliever. You who are outside of Christ and so have lost that key aspect of the image of God, who are in a sense not as human as you ought to be, for that humanity is regained only in Christ, though not totally lost, not totally devoid of that humanity. Come and welcome to being whole again in Christ, the last Adam. And then, to my fellow believers, it falls to us not only to believe that, but to preach that very truth, this very gospel, to all the image bearers with whom we come into contact, who stand yet in rebellion to Him. We must be found faithful witnesses to the truth of God in this crooked and perverse generation, confronting the lies of, the, of militant secularism with the truth of Scripture, destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Again, that is not only a personal mission. It is first that. Make sure you're thinking biblically about all these things. But don't just sit on that. Nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Go and let your light shine before men by having these very difficult, tense, uncomfortable conversations in which you confront the very pillars of the secular worldview for the foolish absurdities that it is. Bring the Word of God to bear on the conscience of man. Bring the law of God to bear. And then bring the gospel of God to heal. Let's pray. Father, make us faithful in that mission. Uh, give us grace to be salt and light as you would have us. Equip especially these dear saints to do that, even this week, to engage, to speak up. To, to speak the law and to speak the gospel and to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Give wisdom. May we maybe do it without rancor. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but with gentleness and reverence, giving an answer for the hope that's in us, remembering that you may give grace in such an interaction that would free them from the captivity of Satan who is captured them to do His will. And I pray that, that You would purify us in these things, seal them to our hearts and minds. And Lord Jesus, we, we just simply turn to You and we bow our hearts and give You praise. It is our delight to know that one in our own nature, the second and last Adam, the perfect image of God, the way that man was to be, the perfect image of God, that one in our own nation now fills the throne of heaven and has been exalted above all rule and authority. It, it, gives, it gives us great pleasure, Lord, to know that one of our own, the chief of our own, sits exalted above the heavens and exercising sovereignty over all the affairs of men. We're glad that you are exalted to where you are worthy of being exalted. Would you come and get glory for yourself on this earth as you deserve it? And as we labor and as we face the conflicts that inevitably arise from doing this work, your mission that you've given us, we, remember our, we comfort ourselves with the truth that you are the head of the church and that if the head be above water, exalted to glory, the church cannot drown. 
We pray in your precious name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.